One of the interesting things about the local moonshine is it tastes a lot like kerosene and it burns even better. This is a scene from the TV show MacGyver. It's your typical chocolate block action where the hero is in a tight spot, cornered by the bad guys on top of the train. He's working out how to use some alcohol he found to set off an explosion to scare the bad guys away. Of course it works. But what does a clever action hero have to do with business? Well, today we're looking at the external factors at play when business people make decisions. And it turns out a little bit of pressure is not such a bad thing when it comes to making good decisions. My colleague Josh Nicholas has more on this. We find that study after study uh, shows that uh, when you reward someone excessively, it's not just that the extra reward doesn't cause them to work harder, or, or sorry, work better or create better outcomes, it actually produces worse outcomes. This is Prabhu Sivabalan, an associate professor in the UTS Business School. He studies how to incentivize people and the research shows that just paying them more is actually counterproductive. There are wonderful chief executives getting paid a lot of money who do things for whom this rule doesn't apply. But in aggregate, when you take a whole bunch, when you take thousands of executive, say, scenarios together and you, and you put them together and look at, what, and, and, and look at the outcome, we, we do see multiple studies that show this negative effect. But this only holds true for cognitive tasks, like decision-making. If you are doing something repetitive, what Professor Sivabalan calls programmable, the effect isn't there. When something's programmable, you know what you have to do. You know that, well, if I run faster, I get that. And to run faster, I just have to exercise more, or do stronger weights. Or there are things you, you, you know doing ABCD gets to E because there's that cause and effect. It's cleaner. Whereas for cognitive tasks, the argument is, you know, um, it's far harder to guarantee an outcome. So you can't say, uh, you, you couldn't have asked um, Leonardo da Vinci, you know, wake up in the morning and give me a masterpiece by 1 p.m., have lunch and give me another one by 7 p.m. because a masterpiece can't be programmed. And so for, for cognitive tasks um, that require almost a free mind that's simultaneously focused and driven and passionate and excited and positive about something, the argument there is giving someone more simply will not make them have that delicate balance of enthusiasm, motivation, drive, ambition. One theory that might explain this is that rewarding people too much makes them complacent. The, the analogy I might use is one of a child with lollies. You know, um, if, 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 if I'm trying to say incentivize my, uh, say, uh, son or daughter to do something, if I offered them the carrot of, say, one lolly or two lollies, yeah, that might motivate them. Three lollies, oh, they might do a bit more. But, you know, if they're now tossing up between 15 lollies and 16 lollies, um, you know, yes, 16 lollies in their mind is better than 15 lollies, but does it actually make them do more? Uh, if they already have a whole bunch of lollies, will it, if anything, just make them more complacent or make them worry less about having more lollies because they already have a lot and it's far too much for them to worry about? Um, and so, if anything, it introduces this kind of complacency. So, so goes the, the theory. 
one other way you can think about it is uh, what I, I call it the MacGyver effect. You know, um, uh, sometimes folks really need to be in a spot of bother to really exercise their creativity for those who know that TV show, um, uh, MacGyver. Um, and if you're just in a normal spot, you just may not have the impetus to do things that you might do if you had less and you had to manufacture more with less, you know. Uh, so the sometimes scarcity can actually not be such a bad thing. The literature isn't clear on exactly how much is too much, but the guideline is pay people enough to get money off the table. We don't quite know where that too much is. And so the, the general theory uh, goes that the ideal amount to pay someone is to pay someone just enough to take money off the table. Give them enough to feel like they're being rewarded for their effort without giving them without giving them an amount that you feel is more than what any other capable individual who could have performed that role might have gladly accepted let's say you're doing a talent search for the next chief executive of the commonwealth bank of australia it's a bank that a lot of phenomenal people would want to be CEO of. And 15 apply. And after interviews, you've whittled them down to four. Do you think that at least two of the four of them would take a $2 million a year salary to do the job, to be the chief executive of the Commonwealth Bank of Australia? Are you sure that the folks who would have taken six or seven would have done a better job? than the two phenomenal candidates out of the four who would have happily taken two to do the job. Sometimes companies forget that they are who they are and amazing individuals would give their right arms to work for them and instead think we need to pay the highest amount for the best person. I'm here to tell them that money motivates a lot of people but we know from research that paying someone more doesn't always get the best person. Around the corner from my house there's a strip of shops and there's three cafes that are right next to each other. Every time I walk past them I think it must be difficult to compete being so close to each other. But in fact, there's actually a reason that these businesses are side by side like this. So whenever there's positions for you to adjust without any ability to cooperate with your rivals, where you have to make your decision and you can't control what they do, there's always potential for somebody else to change their behaviour to completely undermine the strategy. That's Stephen Woodcock, a senior lecturer in mathematics at the University of Technology in Sydney. So I've enlisted Stephen's help, he and I are going to act like two business owners, to show you how game theory might explain this. If you need any more, you can, you can get me back for reshoots, I'll be in my trailer. <clears throat> so I want to set up a cafe somewhere along the street. The street is a kilometre long, running north to south, and all the sections are equally populated customers will prefer to minimise how far they have to go to get a coffee, so I'm going to set up halfway along the street. That gets people from the north and the south. But I'm running a cafe as well, and I want to set up a shop too. 
That street has a lot of foot traffic, so I'm going to set up in the middle of the north side. Well, now I'm too close to your shop, so I'm going to move my shop so that I'm set up in the middle of the south side. Ah, very sensible. We now have what game theorists call a socially optimal solution. We're both serving coffee to half the street, and none of the customers have to walk more than a quarter of the street to get a coffee. But if I want to capture more of the foot traffic, business is a bit slow, I'm going to move my shop a little bit further down the street towards the centre, closer to yours. So now you're just going to steal my customers? The customers just on my side of the centre will be a little closer to your shop. What's going to stop me moving further down the street, a little bit closer to the centre again, so that my shop gets a little bit more of the foot traffic, stealing back the territory you just took, and a little bit more? Uh, nothing. Except the fact that as soon as you did that, I'd just move closer again and I'd reclaim the bigger section. But then I'd do the same again, and we'd get caught in this endless cycle of creeping up and down the street. Uh, exactly. The only way for this to end is for both of us to set up a shop exactly next to each other in the middle of the street. That way one of us would be closest for the northern half, and one of us would be closest for the southern half. But this is worse overall for customers than if we agreed to say a quarter of a kilometre from either end. We're splitting the customer base 50-50, but now people have to travel further. That's true, but that position isn't stable. Either one could choose to ruin it by getting greedy and trying to grab a bigger slice of the territory. So both of our coffee shops wind up in the same place because that's the only way that they're not vulnerable to having their territory stolen by the other business? Yeah, that's what in game theory is referred to as a Nash equilibrium, a position whereby you alone cannot improve your situation by changing your decision. So even though it's not as good for our customers as the option whereby we'd agreed to stay a quarter of a kilometre from either end, it's probably what's going to happen because in real life we wouldn't be telling each other about our plans, we'd just be defensive. That's it. A big thanks to Stephen Woodcock for being such a good sport there. Business Briefing is brought to you by Josh Nicholas and me. I'm Jenny Henderson, the Conversations Business and Economy Editor. Our theme music is by Ben Sound. And if you'd like to give us feedback or rate this podcast, please do. It helps others find it.